0: Prayer is power. All right, you see that right there? I said those three words, and there was at least three different responses in the room. Silence. A soft little amen, right? I think I should say that here. Or a loud amen. Right? When when you say those words, prayer is power, it's going to bring, uh, y'all don't try to say amen now, you didn't at first. (laughs) It's going to bring at least three different responses, at least, or because we're complex, it may bring three different responses in the same person. Here's the first one that it brings. Challenge, right? College football just started. Football, the NFL, we're familiar that when the ref makes a call or says something that your team disagrees with, you throw that red flag, challenge. So when you hear the words prayer is power, immediately you disagree with it, challenge. We've all seen tragedies take place, and folks will say thoughts and prayers with the victim. And what's the first thing that you see? Folks that say prayer. Why don't we stop praying and do something? There's some of us in here that feel like prayer is not power. It's the opposite. Or there's some of us that may not challenge, but maybe we're a little soft-spoken with our amen. We're conflicted on the inside. Right? It feels like a cliché. Right? You know, with clichés, they are truths that you know that you relay, right? Slow and steady wins the race. It's not how you start, it's how you end up. And you can relay them, but you don't really rely on them when things get tough. So you may be here and say, yes, John, prayer is power. But you find yourself too busy to pray. There's things that I've got to do. I'm concerned about my physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, and I spend my time working, and so I don't pray as much. Maybe you feel yourself too burdened to pray. John, I just feel like the wind is knocked out of me. And the last thing that I want to do is pray. I know that things are hard, but I feel like I I just need to watch Netflix and just, just get my mind off of things. Maybe you're too bitter to pray. Maybe you know that God is the one that has allowed the trouble to come into your life the way that it has. And you're so frustrated and angry with Him that you can't pray. Or maybe, and hear this one, you're too blessed to pray. Things are just going so well for you and your life has turned out exactly like you want and you're not lacking in anything. And what has gone on is that you've fallen into the trap that so many people throughout Scripture have fallen into, that when God gives them plenty, they ignore Him. So you say prayer is power, but at best it's a cliche, you're conflicted. But then, I know that there's some of us in here that are actually convinced that when we say prayer is power, that amen was not contrived. You didn't try to do it the next time around to prove that you really felt it, but you're convinced of it. It's your first response and you rely on it. And I pray that as we go through this text that you would be encouraged and the overflow of your prayer life would bless so many. The goal at the end is that we would all be convinced that prayer is power, uh, but being convinced is only half of the battle because you can be convinced and still prayerless. You can be convinced and still powerless. Because good intentions with the bad directions don't get you to your goal. So what Jesus is trying to do here to a group of folks that may be convinced that prayer is power, He's trying to make sure that they're not only confident, but that they're competent in how they know to pray. And here's what hypocrisy can do. We talked about this last week, that God is more concerned with your aim, your ambition, than He is the activity of what you do it's not just enough that you pray jesus is going to find a group of folks here and say hey i'm glad that you may be confident and convinced that prayer is powerful but verse 7 look at uh this right here it says this when you pray don't babble like the gentiles since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words what he's saying is there's a group of folks and as they pray it's impressive and people can look at how they pray and they can imitate what they do, thinking that their intensity or their articulation is going to earn them God's attention and God's favor. And Jesus is saying that's as make believe as a $3 bill. It's not gonna work. So he doesn't want us to pray in such a way that it's powerless, but then here's what that kind of hypocrisy can do as well. It can make you feel like, man, if that's what it takes, if it takes all those words and that articulation and that insight and that alliteration that they do, there's no way that I can pray like that. So I'm just not going to pray. So there's a wrong kind of prayer that can make you powerless. And there's a wrong kind of understanding of prayer that can make you powerless because you never pray. So what Jesus does is He's going to take all the things that would make us not pray, the things that impress us and the things that make us insecure about our prayer lives and He's going to say, listen, those things are insignificant. Here's how you pray. And so with our competence or with our confidence what He's going to do is He's going to give us this set of instructions that serves as a template. Have you ever gone to Ikea and You buy like six bookshelves for your house, and you have no clue how to put the bookshelves together. So with the first one, what you do is you take out the set of instructions. And what you do is you, all right, take the bookshelf. Step one, you do step one. Step two, you do step two. Step three, you do step three. And then with the next bookshelf, it's, all right, step one. All right, I remember step two and step three. But by the time you get to the sixth one, You feel like a carpenter, right? I can do this with my eyes closed. I know what I'm doing. This is what he wants to do with this prayer. It's not that you and I should just memorize and parrot off these words. It's that they would serve as a template. They would guide how you and I are to pray. So with, he gives us competence, learning how to do something so that it increases our confidence In prayer. And here's the aim. When it comes to prayer, something that we miss, but something that's as plain as day, is this, the aim, is this, God's glory is greater than God's gifts. The aim of prayer is that Christians, those that really know God, desire His presence and His glory more and before we desire His provision and His gifts. This prayer split up into two halves, verse 9 and 10 and 11 to 15. And for the very first point, what God's trying to do is this. He's trying to help us see that God's glory is the main thing. Um, So, I'm just going to throw this out as a disclaimer. Um, I talk about my daughter a lot. And so today I won't do that, but I'll talk about lessons that I've learned from children uh, because this prayer starts off with these two words, our Father. And so the whole thing is to be understood in a parent-child relationship, all right? So one thing that my daughter, or all kids do, right? We'll start with my daughter. We come home and she learned these words, um, me first. So we park the car, she's in her seat, and she'll say, me first, me first. And I'll say, no, Ava, me first. I can let you out of the car first and you can do what you want to, uh, but what are you really going to do that's helpful? It's going to be a disaster and you will get hurt. So me as your father, hear this, I come first. And after I come first, I'll, I'll take care of all of your needs, but just know, me first. The Lord's Prayer starts off, look, with, with these two words. Our Father, embracing a relationship. What God is saying is, no, no, me first. I know you have a bunch of needs, I know there's a lot of things that you need, but listen, listen, me first. That if I come first, I'll take care of all of your needs. God's trying to give us the same lesson in prayer. So if you ever think me first, no, no, no. Those words, our Father, there's two things that come up in there. One, Father, so that's He. And then it's not just my Father. It's Our Father. It reminds us He is our God and we are a part of a family. So as we come to pray, we don't just embrace a relationship with God. We embrace relationships. So think, if you're going to come to prayer and start with me first, know that you're wrong. Think of any other pronoun that rhymes with me and that comes first. He comes first. We comes first. If you want to go old school, the, right, with two E's, which means you, that all comes first. That when we come to prayer, listen, we don't have to embrace a regimen. We start off by embracing this relationship. That if God is Father, then that means that the way that we relate to Him is not earned. None of your children provided a resume before they came into your family. You didn't do that with your parents. There are no degrees. God has no favorite children, God has no stepchildren. As a father, listen, he listens. He covers flaws. He loves. He welcomes. He is patient. Some of the best pictures I had of a father uh, was 10 years ago, we moved here to plant a church, working at Blueprint Church. I served on a pastoral uh, team with two pastors who had children, and they both had autism. And seeing the way that these fathers were patient with their kids. Kids that would never be the star of a football team. Kids who may spend their whole lives dependent on them. The way they loved, cared for them, and doted over them. That's the picture that God starts with. if you're ever going to pray and it's ever going to have power, you have to start with this concept of God being father. It's not just of God as a judge, although He is judge. But Jesus doesn't want to start here with intimidating you in a pray the right way. He wants you to understand intimacy. Look, God is a a Father. God invites us in. J.I. Packer says it like this. If you want to judge how well somebody understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of God being Father. Or the thought of being God's child and having God as a father. If this thought does, doesn't prompt and control his worship, prayer, and whole outlook on life, he doesn't understand Christianity very well. Everything that makes Christianity distinct is summed up, is summed up in the knowledge of God as Father. Father is the Christian name for God you all know me as John, and sometimes when my daughter is around and she hears you call me John, then she steps in the car and she calls me John, and I say, wait a minute. Um, everybody else calls me John. That's fine. That is my name. But you call me Father. There's a relationship that we have. My name to you is Daddy. And Jesus is saying, for the Christian, the Christian name for God is Father, and I'll just say this right now, I don't know how long it's been since you've prayed, but He's listening to you right now. Right now. What I love about this text is that we don't just embrace the relationship with God, but with us. He is our Father. Even as Jesus points people to pray in private, He's saying, don't pray in a way to impress people, but your prayer should always involve other people. You are a part of a family. Not only do we embrace God as father, but he goes on and we have to embrace not just the right relationship, but we have to embrace the right posture. He doesn't just say our father, but he says our father in heaven, right? Heaven is When the Bible talks uh, about it and somebody being there, it's not just a place. It's a position, the same way that we would talk about somebody being in the White House. We're not just saying he lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We're saying, no, 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 no. He has a seat of authority and power. So when the Bible says it starts off and we start off and pray, what it does is these first four words... Our Father in heaven is saying this, look, the person with the most power in the world, in the universe, is inclined to you. He loves you. You have His ear. So the question is, if you had the ear of the most powerful person, in the universe listen right now what would you ask for if I were to ask you to say it out loud we would have a bunch of different responses here in the room what I love about what Jesus does is as he's getting ready to prescribe what all of us need the most he gives this cookie cutter prayer he gives the same prayer to everybody facing various circumstances because your individual circumstances are not the most important thing. My brother and I um, uh, for all of our lives we were the same height and weight and size and build and so one thing that we did was uh, when we had to get a tux for a wedding uh, only one of us would go. Because I Size him up and I'll just get whatever you get, right? Um, We were cut from the same cloth, literally. And so it's it's like, yeah, if that works, then that's going to work for you and it's going to work for me. As Jesus knows what goes on in all of our hearts, he's saying all of our hearts are cut from the same cloth. So I don't need to know about what goes on in your life and in your life and your life and your life and, your life and tell you to pray this way and you to pray this way and you to, to pray this way. If you are a human and you have a human heart, this is how you pray. And it unifies us, it reminds us that we're all on the same page. And what he's saying, what he starts off with is this, is, as you look through those first two verses, Notice the pronouns. We're going to follow the pronouns through this whole thing. What you see is they're all second person plural. Your, 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 your kingdom come. Your name be hallowed. Your will be done. It's saying that God, we want your presence more than we want your gifts. God, if you're a father, we don't just want a child support check. We actually want you to be here. We want your presence. He is not a deadbeat dad. So as they're praying, he says, hey, if you start off and you pray. Here's the first thing that you all pray for. You pray that God's name be honored as holy. It's what we do at a wedding. When the bride walks in and you say, everybody stand up. Why do you tell them to stand up? Because you just want to remind everybody, even the groom, that the day is not about you. It's not about y'all. She's at the center. The day's about her. Stand up and honor her. Live as if sh- she should be the center of your attention. And God's saying that as we pray, the very first thing that we should pray is, God, I pray They're not just I, But this entire world would honor you as holy, that you would be the center of everybody's attention and their affections. God, we pray that your kingdom would come. So many of us spend our time on our projects and we we say, no, 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 God the real problem with this world is that you as king, your reign is not acknowledged and we pray that you would bring it here fast. Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it done in heaven? Willingly, joyfully, completely, and quickly. And we're praying that that same thing would take place here. That we're praying and our prayers are first turned Godward. I had a friend in the past who would say this. He'd say, John, uh, life is overwhelming. Make sure you're overwhelmed by all the right things. So as we're coached in how to pray this way, a diagnostic question that I would ask is this. uh, How often do you find yourself burdened by these things? That God's name is not honored as holy that His kingdom is not here yet, that His will is not done. How often do those things cause you to weep, to cause you to lose sleep, to cause you to not be able to eat or to think straight because you just see how bad it is? Or, have you ever found yourself with somebody that you love and there's a TV show that they love um, and in order to try to bond with them you try to get mad at the things that they get mad about right so like the bachelor american idol and uh the person that they want to win they don't get picked and they're mad and you try to be fake mad right Uh, i can't believe it and you start to use words that you wouldn't use i'm aghast i'm a and and you try to be fake mad and it doesn't quite work because They sit with it and they stew with it all week. But as soon as you get up from their presence, you're fine. (laughs) Jesus is trying to help us see that the apathy that you have there, that that's the real problem of what's wrong, not just in your life or our life, but in the world. That our world is apathetic to the concerns that we should be concerned about. Do you believe that God's honor, His kingdom, and His purpose, those things not being honored, longed for, and hailed, is the reason why the world is the way that it is? Listen. Yesterday, five people were killed in Odessa, Texas in a mass shooting. 21 people were injured. Do you know why? Because God's name wasn't honored as holy. Somebody disregarded the creator-creature distinction and felt as if they were the author of life, so they had a right to determine who lives or who dies. The racial conflict that takes place in the world, that's become mainstream, that's on the front and center of, of everything that we read, It started because God made everybody with the same dignity and people don't live as if the way I treat somebody else is a reflection of what I really think about God. The way that the poor are marginalized and disenfranchised and left out on the street and have their homes bought and sold and cheated and abused... That takes place as a result of people that don't want the kingdom of God to come here on the earth because the kingdom of God is going to come with equity and it's not going to exploit the poor. It's going to take care of them. Yeah, and the reason why our world is the way that it is, do you see this? So instead of us trying to be right, fake mad, what we need to do is we need to follow or emotions, and what are the things that really make you mad? If you're anything like me, it's when your name isn't honored as holy. And you know that that's the case because there's a myriad of people that can set you off where you just feel disrespected. It could be your boss. It could be a complete stranger. It could be your kids. It could be a friend. But there's all of these uh, attacks that come daily and you feel mad and upset. Why don't they respect me and you're angry and you're frustrated and you're anxious? What hasn't worked out in your life the way that you hoped that it would work out? What are the things that keep you up at night? The kingdom or the projects that you're trying to build are falling flat on your face and you can't eat and you can't sleep. Your heart feels like it's ripping out of your chest and you're mad and angry and bitter. When do you find yourself most bitter with God? I did everything that you asked me to do and my life isn't adding up the way that my... God, I want my will to take place here and I'm frustrated because your will is done but mine's not. When you pray, or when you ask for people to pray for you, which of the two makes the prayer list? Are you praying in the way that God tells us to pray? Or are the things that make you a list? Hear this, good things, but your things. And here's where we have to stop evaluating prayers based on good or bad morality or immorality. Because you can pray for good things and still be praying in a wrong way, in a way that is powerless. Here's a better grid. Don't think in terms of good or bad. Think in terms of glory, because then when you think in terms of glory, you say, all right, am I praying for God's glory or mine? And you can pray for moral things that are for your glory that make your ambition of prayer the wrong thing. And God cares more about your ambition than your activity. You may say, well, John, if I'm honest, um, I don't want these things above all else. I don't really want God's honor, kingdom, and purpose. I want mine. And I would say, one, That's the source of the anxiety that you have. But two, this is why Jesus prescribes the same prayer to all of us. Look at the freedom that comes from this. If I really want God's honor, kingdom, and purpose above all else, do you know what that does for me? It frees me. So now when my honor, when I'm disrespected, hear this, like you will be this next week. My joy doesn't rest on that. Because that's not what I want above all else. When my kingdom doesn't work out, like it won't, I'm not devastated. I'm disappointed. But I'm not devastated. When my will doesn't work out like I hoped that it would, You can repeat the words of Richard Baxter that says this, I hope I shall never dare to say or think that he is mistaken. That's the next slide on the screen. Uh, I hope I shall never dare to say or think that he is mistaken or that I could have chosen better for myself. Many a time has the wise and good will of God crossed My foolish, rebellious will, listen to this, and afterwards I have perceived that it was best. It's not an enemy or a tyrant that has made me, preserves me, or calls me hence. The more I've tried him, the better I've found him. Had I better obeyed his ruling will, how happy would I have been. Isn't it far better to be at God's choice than my own or any man? You look through the Bible at people that pray, God, your will be done, and what you'll find um, is you'll find guys like Job. You remember that story? Ah, God, you give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the right, It's your will above all else. You'll find the three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3. We believe that God can save us from the fiery furnace that you will throw us into, but even if he does not, we're still going to serve him. Not our will, but his, and Dad, we're actually getting close to the fire. God, I thought that you would save us from it. And they get thrown in. But God doesn't save them from. He saves them in and shows his glory in a unique way. In the way he preserves, not in the way that he prohibits trouble from coming to us. You see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying. Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what we see is that he doesn't get the same protection that the Hebrew boys from being preserved in trouble. He goes all the way through trouble to death, and he's raised, and we see a different way that God gets glory. And you start to find that it's more than a cliché, but when we say God not... My will, but yours be done. Here's what you find. Have you ever had somebody throw a surprise party for you or you try to throw one for them? In the meantime, do you know what you get from them? Their anger. They're really mad. I feel like you're not paying me any attention. I feel like you're just so busy with your life that you don't have any time for me. You get suspicion. I look through your phone and why are you calling all my friends why don't you want me to look at you and you get somebody that doesn't quite get what you're doing and if you really want to throw them a surprise party then you bear the weight of the suspicion the anger the frustration and then when you say surprise you see the surprise and the shame on their face for all they felt and the shame is a little bit rewarding on the inside right Listen, I want you to know when it comes to your life, our Father is throwing a surprise party. You may be mad or frustrated or too bitter. I can't believe that you would let this take place. Or God, I just wish that my will would take place. But all he's saying is, no, listen, if you would just pray, my will be done. Do you know what you would see? You would see that prayer is power. Man, I'm running out of time. God's presence, got you. All right, point two. (laughs) I only have two points, so this is point two, the conclusion. Um, The prayer is split up into two halves. The first half, the aim is God's glory. God's glory is our aim. The next half is about the provision. And here's what you see, or here's what you find out. That when God's glory is your aim, God's gifts become your ammunition. The gifts aren't the end goal. The gifts that he gives are the very thing that gets you towards that aim. Here's what he's trying to do in the next half of the prayer. He's trying to teach us to rely on God for absolutely everything. Dependence of all types and dependence at all times. Look here at verse 11, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once again, we're going to follow the pronouns. They're highlighted. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others, their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your offenses. That's confusing. I'm going to get to it here in a bit, but I just want to show you the three things. Here's the first thing. God tells us to pray for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's what I mean by all types. For our physical provision, our relational. God tells us to pray for forgiveness, the thing that would close the gap in between beef that we have. God tells us to pray for our spiritual needs, deliverance from the evil. one, But at all times, too, God tells us to pray for our present provision, our past forgiveness, and our future protection. He's trying to get you and I to be completely dependent, dependent of all types and at all times. Here, here's bread. The scripture that we read, Psalm, or Proverbs 30, 8 and 9, what he's saying is, God, don't give me too much. Because if you give me too much, I'll be independent of you, and if I'm independent of you, I'll ignore you. But God, don't let me starve because if I feel like I'm going to starve, then I'll be forced to steal and I'll profane you. What he's doing is he's connecting. right? He's packing the sandwiches of God's provision into the lunch pail right, of God's glory. He's saying, God, even the way that I eat is closely tied to your glory being seen here in the world. He's connecting it. He's connecting it though like Velcro. It's there, but he's saying, God, it's fragile. It can come unconnected really quick and I don't want that to be the case. And he's praying, God, help me to realize my utter dependence on you. That my boss, pleasing him, is not the reason why I'm able to keep my job and eat. My opportunities aren't the reason why I can eat. My gifting, my skill, my ingenuity. God, the reason why I eat is because you're gracious and you feed me even when I don't ask for you to feed me. What he's trying to help us see is, look, 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 that as we pray this way, you you are free from worry. One preacher says it like this, worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its problems. It only empties today of its strength. And he's saying, you don't have to live any days that aren't promised to you. You have right now. God is gracious. Listen, most of us in here, right, the median age is 30-something. By virtue of you being here, you've eaten For a lot of those days. If you would have started off this prayer from the time that you learned how to pray and prayed it every day, do you know what you would have? 30 years of God answering a prayer. And those are breadcrumbs that are meant for faith-starved souls that when we doubt God's love that we would say, But wait a minute, I've prayed for God to feed me, and He has. But the reason why we don't pray is because we're entitled. And we don't feel like we have to depend on God in that same way, because we know that if I need a chicken sandwich, I'm going to go to Popeye's, and when they sell out, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A with the money in my bank account. We know that we're free, but Jesus tells us, no, no, no. Remember, you're completely dependent on God. So you're free from worry. Look, not only are you free from worry, but you're free from having to work for your place in relationship with God. Look, verse 12, forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. What he's saying is that freedom from our past mistakes never come through future performance. They come through God's past pardon. It's not, God, give me one more chance to Make it up to you. Because God knows, look, makeup doesn't heal any blemishes. It just covers it up. They're still there. As we're writing our story, all of us are writing it in permanent ink. Your future acts and pledges of obedience to God, you may do them all, but do you know what a pen can never do? Erase past mistakes. So as we come, what he's saying is, God, I pray that you would forgive me, pardon me, not one more chance, give me a Savior. And we depend on God that way. We don't depend on our works, we depend on God, and it frees us from the anxiety of working and feeling like, am I doing enough to keep my place in God's family? But then he goes on and says, God, would you, look, lead us not into temptation." and deliver us from evil. What he's saying is, God, don't put me in a place that my faith could fail. Again, it's against, right, the freedom from being weak or at least the effects that come from weakness. Here's what I want you to see. God's goal in you remaining faithful in this life is not for you to learn self-defense. It's not, let's get you up to a place where temptation has no bearing on it. God's saying, no, 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 no. The reason why we pray for deliverance as often as we pray for forgiveness, as often as we pray for our daily bread, is because he wants us to rely on God. We're praying, don't give me the strength to withstand. Deliver me from it. When I was in elementary school, uh, me and my godbrother got into a fight in church, in our youth class. So we said, hey, we're going to the bathrooms afterwards and we're going to work this out. Stephen was bigger than I was, stronger than I was, uh, and I'd never really been in a fight, so I was already nervous. Uh, but my brothers came with me. Um, so we start, we square up. You know, Stephen was big, but he was quick. Well, he just threw that left jab really quick, hit me in the face. Uh, and that's all I remember seeing Not because he knocked me out, but before my brothers jumped on him. And what I learned is if I've got somebody close by, I never really have to learn how to fight. I just have to learn how to call out for help. God is omnipresent. He is always close by. The way that we fight is we call out for help and hear this. This is a great prayer for anybody out there that may find themselves in a severe addiction to substances, to pornography, to pride, to sex, to something destructive. And you sit here and you say, I haven't had a clean day in a while. How am I ever going to remain faithful for my entire life? What Jesus says is, just pray for help today. Just pray right now. Take it one day at a time. It's not going to be your resolve or your strength that gets you out. He's trying to make you dependent. So all you do is say, God, today on Sunday, September 1st, Lord, would you help me? Would you free me, Father? And in this prayer, what we see is this movement. It starts with God and it extends to the devil at the end. It starts with heaven and it ends here on earth. It's meant to encompass the entire experience that you and I have as we depend on God for everything. And we're reminded here that we are requesting gifts. And here's what I want to tell you again. Follow the pronoun. As we ask for these gifts, these things that we ask for, uh, gifts are not for resale. So notice how he doesn't say, God, give me my bread. Give me my forgiveness. Give me protection. He says, give us, us, our, our. Why? Because there's two ways to attack somebody's independence. One is to make them depend on you for everything that they get. And one is to make them share everything that they get, to depend and then to distribute. So when we pray in the plural, what we're saying is this, God, give us, and, and not some vague us, that when we join a church and when we're part of a church, when we have a community, it's no, God, give us, give, give all the folks that are here in my phone that I know that are part of Cornerstone Church. God, give us all that we need. Why? Because then when God blesses you with a promotion and somebody loses their job, you can say, God answered our prayers. He gave me more than what I need, and I know what people tend to do with plenty. He gave them less than what they need, so here's what I'm going to do. God, the the more that I have, I'm going to give it to them, and you've answered our prayers. When we pray, God, forgive us, of our sins, here's what we do. We are reminded. And that's what the end of this is trying to get at, right? So if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. But if you don't, it's not saying God's forgiveness is based on ours. What it's trying to get at is this. One author puts it like this. Um, The reason why we don't forgive people is because we find ourselves superior to them or better than them. So we'll maximize their sin and minimize our own. And we'll say things like, I do bad, but I would never do that. I don't get how they could do that to me. And what he's saying here is that the type of person that would find themselves superior to somebody else is not the type of person that would appeal to God for forgiveness, Because they're looking down on somebody else. Forgiveness comes when we realize, like Pastor Bob said up here, yo, I look around the room and I may know things that y'all have done, but I don't know your hearts, but I know my heart. And I'm the worst of the bunch. And so as I'm crying out for forgiveness, and I receive it graciously from God, the mark of really receiving forgiveness is being able to give that same forgiveness. It's meant to share. It's meant to make this church a peaceful church. The goal is that all of this would teach you and I dependence on God. And as we learn to depend on God, do you know what we do? We start to lament or mourn the fact that we spent so much time trying to be independent of God. Because we found that I'm dependent on God. And now I can celebrate that God has been absolutely dependable. And so the anxiety that I had that caused me to mourn, that caused me to be too busy, too frustrated, too bitter to pray, now that anxiety turns into reasons to pray, and the reasons to pray turn into reasons to praise God for answering that prayer. And Jesus... Being the good teacher that he is doesn't stop just with explanations. But he lives this whole thing out. What the Gospels do, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is they paint this like panoramic picture of Jesus. There was this movie that came out years ago, Vantage Point, and it started off with this eight-minute clip And you saw some scene from one perspective. And then they had another eight-minute clip. And you saw that same scene from a different perspective. And then it went on like that until at the end of the thing. Oh, you had this like full picture. Each of the gospel authors are talking about the life of Jesus from a perspective that gives us a bigger picture of who he was. And what we see in him was we see somebody who was burdened by the very things that God was. Matthew chapter 9, he looks and he sees this town of folks, and it says Jesus was filled with compassion because he saw Israel and this group as sheep without a shepherd. People that were wandering aimlessly and didn't know that they had a father. In the Gospel of Mark, as he rides into the city to deliver Israel, to deliver the world from the enemy of their souls, he comes in, and what he doesn't do is he doesn't storm the castle. He storms the temple where this religious hypocrisy is keeping people far from God. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus approaches the city, and as he comes, it says he is weeping. Because God's name isn't honored and His kingdom hasn't come in its fullness in the Gospel of John. We see Jesus turning over the the tables in the very temple. And what we saw is all throughout these Gospels, people wanted God's gifts. They wanted deliverance from their physical oppressors. But they didn't want God's glory. They didn't want somebody coming in telling them what to do and how to live and what was wrong and the way to make things right. So what they did with Jesus, with this king, was they put him on a cross. They killed him. And here's another thing that the gospel authors do so well, is each of them capture some of his last prayers. And so what I want to do is I want to go through each gospel and just read a part of it. The night before he's betrayed, Jesus is sitting with his disciples in a room, and he says this in John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Hear this. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. When John talks about the hour, it's talking about the crucifixion. I am getting ready to die. Father, I pray that you would use my life to glorify you. Jesus is somebody that's praying for God's glory above all else. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. And he said, here in the garden, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. God, we pray your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke chapter 23, 34. Then Jesus said, look, on the cross, the people that were killing him, he had no sins of his own to pray for. But he says this, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And then we see this scene in Matthew 27. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, look, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect Son of God was forsaken, cast out, crucified. Why? Not because of his sin, but because of ours. And then look what takes place here at the end. Our sin put this barrier in between heaven and earth. It was symbolized in a curtain of a temple that would remind anybody whenever they wanted to approach God in prayer or to forgive their sins that there is this wall set up in between God and you. That if your sins are not forgiven throughout all this thought of God as Father, you should think of God as judge, because He's holy. And in Jesus praying that God would forgive us, and taking the position, not as a beloved son, but as an enemy, look what takes place, Matthew 27. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up His spirit. Look, suddenly... The curtain of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Do you know what took place? When He died on the cross for our sins. All of this good stuff here that I talked about in this prayer, we aren't entitled to any of it. But He provided this free and full access for us to come to Him. Boldly. The barriers between us and God have been removed forever. And God's courtroom has turned from one of justification or condemnation into an adoption courtroom where you and I can be brought into his family if we would just be those that say, God, I have nothing to offer, but I need absolutely everything all the time would you give it to me you have an amazing gift use it your prayers are not about your ability to articulate precisely god can fill in the gaps Your prayers are not about your ability to convince God that you really mean it this time. All you're doing in your prayers is you are riding Jesus' coattails into the kingdom. And we are reminded that prayer of this sort has a shelf life. Here's what I mean by that. There is going to be one day where praying like this, making these requests of God, we won't have to make them anymore. God's name will be honored as holy. The Bible is clear. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. God's going to vindicate himself and all of us that have suffered for him. There's going to be a time when we don't have to pray about God's kingdom coming. Do you know why? Because the Bible says that God's going to make his dwelling place with man. His mailbox is going to be right next door to our mailbox. We won't have to pray about His will being done because we will have seen it done perfectly. We won't have to pray about daily provision because the Lord will be with Him face to face. He'll be the one sustaining us. We won't have to pray about forgiveness for sins because one day He's going to come and completely remove this capacity that you and I have to sabotage ourselves. We won't have to pray about future protection. Because He will defeat the enemy of our soul once and for all. He will do it. In the meantime, we have the privilege to rely on Him. for To experience the power that comes from being free of worry, of working, and of weakness. Hear this. That is why we do so much of what we do together. That is why an announcement on Wednesday night prayer is not something to think lightly of. You do not learn how to ride a bicycle by reading books. You actually have to get on. And learn how to lean and balance on those pedals. You do not learn how to pray by listening to good sermons on prayer. You actually have to get on. And if you don't know where to start or how to do it, that's what we we want to do. We've been praying this whole year that God would fill up our rooms with people that lean on Him. Prayer is power. I hope you're convinced. I hope you're a little more competent in it. I pray that you would lean with us. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we ever take those words lightly again in light of all that you've done for us? Father, help us. Help us to experience the freedom that comes from leaning.